Imagine. Imagine if going to church made you a marked man or a marked woman. Imagine if you lived in the kind of world where you could go to the cash point. You know that thing it does when it spits the card back out again? You think, oh, that's funny, that's not working. You know, you put the card back in again and then, oh, blast, it swallowed the thing up. And then you realise it's out now. You're a Christian. You've been seen at church. Account cancelled. Imagine you come home, you ferret around for the keys. Is that the right one? Try and turn the lock. Oh, hang on a minute. What doesn't that work? Find the locks have been changed. Your home seized. Your phone buzzes in your pocket. What's this doing here? It's an email. No, it's a text. It's your boss. It's work. Don't bother coming in today. You're fired, churchman. Christian, don't show yourself here again. Imagine that. Imagine what we'd be tempted to think and and feel. What do you think would be the temptation for you if that was the backdrop of of the world in which we lived? My suspicion uh, and my thought is, at least for me and I expect for many of you as well, is that probably long before someone changed the locks on the door, I'd be tempted to just cool off tempted to play church down a bit. A less public faith, a less corporate faith, a less obvious proclaimed faith, a less gathered Christianity. Would I be going to church as much if it costs that much? I suspect I would drift. With such daunting persecution hanging over me, I'd be tempted to drift and to give up on church. Well, that's the situation of the people in the letter to the Hebrews. There's persecution hanging in the air, mutterings, rumblings, whisperings of what could happen. And this group of believers in this letter before us today are tempted just to throw the towel in. They're tempted to give up, to drift away. Maybe it would be better to just give up on this little church centred around Jesus And go back to the synagogue. Go back to the old life and the old ways. After all, they didn't give me such a hard hard time there. Maybe that would be better. Drift. Drift. That's the issue in this letter. And I wonder whether it's the issue for us today too. Drift. I mean, honestly, as we examine our own hearts, how often do you think we're tempted just to drift away from Christ? Drift away from him and his church. I was reading a book recently, um, very, very recently published, and it says that estimates vary, but in the United States of America, since the COVID-19 pandemic started, one third of people who previously attended church regularly have not yet returned in person. One third of people, in other words, have maybe have drifted away. Now, I know that number includes some people who are very anxious and concerned. I know that number will include some people who are clinically vulnerable. Of course it will. But nonetheless, it's a big number, isn't it? Drift, it's there in the air. And uh, reading this book this week uh, called Rediscovering Church, um, the author says, look, it'd be hard enough returning to church if it were just a deadly disease that kept us apart. 
The reality is there's so many other factors that tempt us to drift from church, aren't there? Uh, author talks about debates over masks and vaccines, you know. Folk have debated it online, haven't they, on social media. And we think, goodness, how can I sit next to folk when I know what they've said on social media? I didn't agree with them. How can I sit next to them in church? How can I go to church when I feel like I've got more loyalty, more allegiance with my political allies than with my church family? Tempted to, to drift because of that. Tempted to drift, perhaps, because of recent elections, this guy says in the States. You know, people disagreed, didn't they? About Trump and Biden and, and all the rest of it. Maybe in this com- country we talk about disagreements over Brexit. And how do we sit next to each other when we know we, some of us have different views on these things? And what about the pastors? Have they helped us recently? Like, what have they done during the pandemic, he says? Goodness me. Much more tempting to to watch the glossy guys online with their polished performances. And no one would know anyway. It's not like anyone sees me and what I'm doing. This also says we have all have many reasons not to get back committed to church. And he says, actually, some churches don't even expect us to go back to church. Some churches are launching virtual churches with virtual pastors. And so here we have a world in which there's no need to put on pants <laughs> That's American speak, by the way, that's trousers. <laughs> Sorry. Never just read what someone else has said. Um, no need to put on trousers. No need to search for a parking spot. No need to tune out other people's crying babies. No need to make small talk over the taste of dodgy coffee. No need to stifle a yawn through a long sermon. No need to taste the bread and the wine. Maybe that's the kind of world we're moving into, a world where it's just so easy to drift. I don't know about you, but I would be naive if I wasn't saying that wasn't a big temptation. Drift, it's the issue. And I think we know that. And I think that's why this Bible passage before us is so surprising and so startling. Because look what it says in chapter 10 of Hebrews and verse 24. Look at this command. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The Bible says to us, don't drift. No, rather get more connected. Draw near to God in the local church. Get involved stirring one another up in service of the Lord Jesus. How does the Bible get to say that to us when everything around tells us just drift, just drift? How does the Bible get to say that to us? And that's what I'd like us to look at this morning. We've got two points. And uh, and the first one is this. This passage in verses 1 to 18 tells us, I think, you won't get to heaven the old ways. You won't get to heaven the old ways. You see, the reality is, we know it, isn't, don't we, that if we drift from Christ, well, we will be drifting to something else. If Jesus Christ isn't my Lord and my Saviour, well, something else will be. It might be popular atheism or humanism or a bit of religiosity that I have just without Jesus, a faith of good works and good deeds. If I drift from Jesus, I will move to something else. 
Now listen, here in this passage for the Hebrew people, it actually wasn't that at all. For them, they were tempted to go back to the old religion, the old ways of the priest and the sacrifice. The issue is they haven't worked out whether that's a good idea. They haven't questioned, is it wise to go back to the old ways? And this is what this passage wants to do for us. Is it any good to go back? Is it any good to drift away? Well, the author wants to say here, no, it isn't. The old ways don't get you to heaven. The old ways don't make you perfect. The old ways don't result in forgiveness of sin. Look how it explains it in verse one. Speaking of the Old Testament sacrifices, look, look with me at verse one. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It can never work on its own. But scroll down and look at verse 11. He speaks of sacrifice, then he speaks of the priest. Look at verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Do you see it? Which can never take away sins. You see, you can drift away to the old religion and the old way, says this author. But they never work. They never work. They'll never make you perfect. They'll never fit you for entrance to heaven. You see, these priests and these sacrifices were limited. There was only so much they could do. It was a bit like the fourth rail bridge in Scotland. Some of you will know this story. It's almost coming to an end, actually. Fourth rail bridge built in, I think, 1971. And the rail company started painting the bridge. But by the time they painted the bridge and got to one end, they found that the other end, the painting, had started flaking off. And so the painters had to go back to the beginning and start again. And for every year since 1971, people have been painting the fourth rail bridge. Non-stop. They have never been finished. I'm told they've got a new paint. And actually, maybe next year, they will, in fact, finally finish the painting the bridge. Can you believe it? But this is what the author wants to say about the old ways. The priests were constantly on duty, like the painters. They never finished. The sacrifices kept being offered again and again and again. It never did the job. It never completed the work. This author says to us, you go back to the old ways and you're going back to something that doesn't work. It never works. It's never finished. Don't you think if they were finished, the priest would sit down? Don't you think if those who painted the fourth rail bridge were finished, they'd sit down? Don't you think they would? The old ways, you see, they never worked. They could never get you to heaven. They were only ever pointers and shadows. They were only a picture of what was needed. They were to show us we needed forgiveness. They were to show us that we needed a sacrifice without actually being the final, complete, sufficient sacrifice in and of themselves. You see, the logic of this passage is drift away from Christ and his church and go, as it were, to something that resembles the old ways... And it would be like going to the Eiffel Tower to take a photo of the shadow rather than enjoy the building itself. It would be like going to the Isle of Wight Festival and being fascinated by the words Duran Duran and Liam Gallagher painted on the plinth around the stage. 
rather than enjoying the reality that's on the stage. It would be like turning up in Cornwall and saying, I'm going to hug the sign, rather than going to Crantock Beach or Polzeth Beach and having the reality. The sign isn't Cornwall, it's just a pointer. And these things in the Old Testament religion, well, they're like scaffolding. They're like the structure that prepares the way for the real building, the real reality to come. You see, it had priests, but it didn't have the priest. It had sacrifices that pointed to the sacrifice. Don't go back to that. Why would you do that? You see, this was the way the Old Testament religion worked. It was like you went to the temple and it was like there you you engaged with a priest and you engaged with an earthly priest because you trusted somehow. That because you're engaging with this earthly priesthood, that somehow that would be mirrored in heaven. There would be a priest acting for you in heaven. And when that priest did a sacrifice, you were trusting somehow that that pointed to a sacrifice happening in heaven for you. So what does the Christ say when he comes into the world? Look at what the author says in verse five. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired. But a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. You see, Christ didn't come and turn up to be another priest in a long line of priests. He didn't come saying, get me the knife and the lamb and I'll do another sacrifice. He said, I've come and you have prepared a body me. I haven't come to do another sacrifice. I've come to be the sacrifice, a body like yours and mine, to take the punishment for my sin in my place. As I've looked at these verses, I've just been startled with this thought that the Lord Jesus comes into the world saying, a body you prepared for me. The bodies were made such as ours that one day a body like ours might be taken by our saviour for us. Jesus came to be the sacrifice. Jesus didn't come to be another priest and say, give me a little office in the corner of the temple and I'll, I'll do some sacrifices. He came and verse 13, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He is the priest. He's the final priest who sits down the work completed, job done. The old ways are finished. They're fulfilled. And heaven, which could never be secured in the old ways, is now secured through Christ. So you see, we don't go back to the old ways. We don't drift back to the old ways. They, they won't perfect us. They won't make us right with God. They won't perfect us for heaven. They're only shadows. Now, what might be these things that we drift to? I don't think many of us are tempted to turn up at the Isle of Wight synagogue, if indeed there is one. But I guess we go for the religiosity, don't we? We go for a works-based religion. We go for, I'll say a few prayers. I'll do a few good deeds. I'll wallow in shame. I'll give myself a hard time. And I'll do my own sacrifices. I'll, I'll drift from Christ and I'll come up with my own religious system. But you see how this passage points it out to us. These things aren't presented in heaven. They don't cover for our failure to love God with all our heart and soul and mind. They don't cover for our need to love our neighbour. And we owe God all our 
all our lives anyway. Can't pay him off with a bit of our own religious system, can we? No, here Christ comes and he takes a body and he faces the death that I deserved. He stands in my place. He completes the sacrifice. He rises to life. He stands in heaven for me and there his offering is proclaimed for me and we're declared not guilty. We're perfected for heaven because of his heavenly work. And the old ways could never do it. So what's the message here for us? Well, it is trust him, isn't it? Don't drift from certain salvation through Jesus in heaven to something else. Don't drift to that. Now, how might you know you're drifting? Well, I wonder how much you think of the Lord Jesus as being that victorious one. That one seated in heaven, finished, not painting the bridge anymore. The work is done on a throne, a sacrifice made, a job done. Is that how you think of the Lord Jesus? Or do you think of the Christian faith more like other religions, constant work, constant cycling? to be done do you remind yourself of the assurance of what christ has done for you in heaven do you find yourself nervous do you find yourself stressed do you find yourself drawn to repetitive ritualistic habits do you try and make your own atonement or are you repenting and trusting christ knowing there is a true work a fulfilled work a heavenly work done for us If that's you, I hope you can see this morning. Those continued sacrifices, that continued work, 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 will it never work? It was only ever the scaffolding, the point of the shadow. The Lord Jesus Christ, sacrificed on the cross, risen, eternal priest, certain, seated saviour in heaven. He is the one on whom it all depends. Everything else is unstable, uncertain, limited, ineffectual, merely earthly. But in Christ we find something that is effective, heavenly, indestructible, unshakable. Because Jesus is seated on the throne of heaven. Work done. So that's it. Yeah? (laughs) That's it we go. Yes. Yes. But then comes the therefore. Then comes the therefore. Look with me at verse 19. Then this passage moves on, doesn't it? Don't drift away, but draw near. Hold fast your confession. Consider. Consider how to stir one another up. You see, rather than drifting away from Christ, we're to draw near to him. We're to hold our hope together and we're to work together as a team. If we look at the words that come, verse 19, these words that earlier I said were so shocking. And we notice here how, how undeniably corporate and communal they are. How much we actually need one another to not drift away. How the Lord gives us one another so that we don't drift away. Look at verse 19. What does it say? It addresses us as brothers. Not as individuals, but as a team and a family. The words that it uses are we have confidence now in heaven. We have a priest now in heaven. It speaks of us together, doesn't it? And what are the commands? Let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast. Let us encourage one another. This is the antidote to drifting away. This is how 
the Bible gets to say to us, don't drift away because Jesus has done a final work in heaven. And he has established his church as the place of encouragement to the heavenly life. It's the place where we take on the mind of heaven, of what's gone on in heaven for us. It's the place where we hold on to the hope of heaven together. It's the place where we encourage each other until the day of heaven. I think it's no surprise that the Lord would establish a people for this. Some of you will have been to um, concerts and rallies and political gatherings and things like that, I'm sure. If you've ever been part of a crowd like that, you'll know how quick it is that you kind of become part of what's going on. You know, there's a cheer here and you think, oh, oh cheer there as well then, haven't I? And there's laughter over here. Oh, that, was, that joke was supposed to be funny, yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and, and you get part of, you get carried along by a crowd and a group. I don't think it's a surprise that God should give us a gathering and a family and a church, that the Lord should ata- establish heavenly assemblies as a foretaste of heaven to come, as outposts calling us to holding on to hope. I don't think it's a surprise if we know our Bibles that the Lord should do this too. We speak of the, that Old Testament system being fulfilled. And what did that Old Testament system do? Well, it was always drawing people to God. It was drawing the nations to God. Well, no surprise then that when that's fulfilled, God should still be calling a people together, calling a people to himself. We know the vision down the line of the the heavenly assembly. No surprise that there should be assemblies now pointing to it and doing the work of encouragement to heaven. I think it's no surprise that the Lord should want to use these for our good. And to encourage us, you know, that temptation to drift away. For the Hebrew people here, it's also um, visual and and physical. Why go back to the old way? Well, it's because it looks, it's, it's got a touch and feel to it. The old little religious systems we devise for ourselves, we say, well, we're doing something like this. You know, you can go to a Diwali festival if you're a Hindi. You can go to a Yom Kippur thing. You can do Ramadan. Now, atheism is all about only what you can see, right? So what does God give us? Well, he gives us a victory and forgiveness declared in heaven. A saviour in heaven, something heavenly. We can't see it, but we're confident of it. We know it. We have Jesus resurrected from the dead. And he establishes a church, a physical gathering for us. No surprise that the Lord should do that for us. And so we see, I think, in this second half, and here I'll try and be brief, um, we see here that we need encouragement from heaven until the day of heaven. And we need each other for that. We need encouragement to see that heavenly reality. Look at verse 9, what does it say? Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. His instruction to take on the mind of heaven. We've got confidence to to enter the holy places, to to draw near to God in in heaven. You can come near to God now. You can come near to him through prayer. But notice here again how corporate all these things are, right? Let us draw near to God. You see, we can, and I trust that we do, read our Bibles and we pray and we seek to draw near to God day by day as individuals. But here's a command to do it together. 
God promises specially to be with his people as they draw near to him together. The Lord promises to be at work as his words proclaimed. The Lord promises that when you gather two or three to pray, there he is. He promises that he's given gifts to his church. You see, there's a special sense in which when we come together, God is really blessing and and at work to build us up. Not that he doesn't anywhere else, but that he specially does as we gather. And here's that encouragement. Take hold of heaven as you draw near to God together, as you're blessed, as you meet with one another. And as you do that, look at verse 23. Look at the encouragement here. Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Here's this group of believers told, don't drift away, draw near to God. And what else? Hold on to your hope together. How better to get to grips with the hope of heaven than to do it with others who are trusting in the hope of heaven, in the king of heaven. I don't know about you, but when I've struggled with grief, when I've struggled, in a sense, with despair, when I've been tempted to drift away, it hasn't always been me who's been able to remind myself of heaven. It hasn't always been that that sort of generated inside, as it were. But it's very often been others who have spoken the truth of heaven to me. Let us hold fast our confession of our hope. We do that well together, don't we? Don't we? I've been struck thinking on this thing. When was the last time I spoke of heaven on a Sunday with someone? When was the last time I deliberately made a plan to speak to someone about the heavenly realities on a Sunday morning or at a growth group? I think thinking on this, my conviction has become that it ought to be rare. In fact, maybe... Never even a Sunday should go by when I'm not mentioning heaven or heaven isn't on the lips of our people and us together. You see, we need encouragement from heaven for the day of heaven. And we're to do that together. Let's draw near to God together. Let's know him together. And let's hold on to our hope together, says this passage. Don't drift away, draw near. Hold on to your hope together. But then verse 24, these key verses, look. And read them for us together. Here's this encouragement. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't drift away, this passage says, but come to church and be a stirrer. Now, normally it's bad when you get called a stirrer, isn't it? Here, it's uh, to be a considered stirrer. Most, most times if we stir up trouble, well, at least with me, I've done it inadvertently and through overexcitement about something or other. Here, this passage tells us, come to church considering how to be a stirrer. To stir up love and good works to stir up faith acted out amongst the people. And how does that happen? And how can that happen? Notice the qualification of verse 25. Not neglecting to meet one another. See, here's the first thing we're going to do if we want to be considered stirrers, if we want to not drift away but draw near to God amongst his people and hold on to the hope of heaven. 
Well, we're going to not neglect to meet together. As I said earlier, I've been reading this book about rediscovering church. And I spotted some examples in it this week of how of how so many things happen in our church meeting just organically. How much sometimes there is that considered you come to church, you've got a plan. You think I'm going to speak to that person, encourage them. But sometimes a load of stuff just happens just by being there. And you may know it, not know it, but you encourage me when you're there. Are we not encouraged when we look around, we see oh, that person's there again. I thought this week they'd call it off. I know they've had a rough time, but they were there. They wanted to hear of the hope of heaven. That encourages me. But loads of other stuff happens that, that never, can never happen virtually. The author writes about saying, look, imagine. Imagine you had a hidden hatred towards another Christian. But then you come to the Lord's Supper. It brings you to conviction. It brings you to confession. Imagine you were suspicious of someone else in the church family. You weren't sure of their actions. You held them kind of under the spotlight, as it were. But then you find yourself standing near one another and singing the same songs of praise. It warms your heart. And that's happened just because we were there. Imagine you've been anxious about what's going on in the big political scene. So worried. But then you're at the sermon and and the, the preacher, he's preaching about the Lord's sovereignty. The victory of Jesus. And the sermon's great and everything, but that isn't what does it. It's those little nods you notice. People are nodding. People are going, hmm. One guy even says, amen. Pentecostal. (laughs) And it stirs you up, doesn't it? It stirs you up to your heavenly hope. Imagine you came to church and an older couple there, you know, they had a spare seat at the table. They said, come to lunch. You thought, okay, all right. And as you're there, they're questioning. I mean, you have a lovely time and they're questioning you and it's, you don't want it. If, if you're honest, you've got this kind of hidden secret. You don't want to talk about it. You don't want it brought into the light. But with that tender questioning, when they say again, how are you really? It comes out. Light is shone. You see, all of that happens just by being there. Just by meeting. Just by gathering. Here's the call. There is a heavenly reality. There's a heavenly rescue. There's a heavenly sacrifice. There's a heavenly priest. Your forgiveness of sins is guaranteed there. And if you want to hold on to that until the day of heaven, well, get involved in the heavenly assembly. Be there to draw near to God. Be there to hold on to hope. Be there to encourage one another. And come being a considered stirrer. Maybe if there's a little soundbite to take away, maybe that's the soundbite. A considered stirrer. Shake that around in your head for a few weeks. What's that going to mean for me? Maybe. Hmm. One day there is coming a heavenly gathering. One day we will especially draw near to God because we will be in his presence. One day we won't need to hold on to the hope of heaven anymore because heaven will have come to carry us up there. The Lord Jesus coming in glory. But today we note, we need each other. We need each other. And other Christians need you more than you realise. And one day, we'll understand how much we needed them too. The church 
is the place of heavenly encouragement. It's the touch point of heaven. It's where Jesus is head of the church. Don't drift from that. But draw near to God. Hold fast to your hope and encourage the church family. Friends, that's how and that's why the Bible can tell us to stick with church. As we close, perhaps I'm reminding how we started this morning. We started and I said, imagine if coming to church made you a marked out person. And I think we, we'd think then in that situation that church was a good thing. And then there's this bad persecution that comes. As I've thought about this message and thought about my feelings towards church and indeed our church culture often, I, I think we don't always think of it like that. Often I think we think the church is actually a difficult thing, a hard thing. And actually there isn't really the person, you know, the stuff out there is actually quite good. <laughs> and church is the bad thing that makes my life difficult. It's, do you know what I mean? It's not just me. But I think we can see here how meeting as the church, well, it's not about, is it good, is it bad, is it, is it easy, is it comfortable? It's the gift of Christ to his people. It's the place where the encouragement of heaven happens. And I guess as we get here, we just have to think on him. That one who has sat down in heaven for you, does he not mean for our good? Does he not mean to give us exactly what we need? And I'd love it if my Christian life and my holding on to hope was just perfected. I'd love it if it just happened really quickly. But the truth is it doesn't happen quickly. The truth is that the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is often very slow. And the truth is that it often happens in that, in that context of us being together. The slow encouragement, the slow seeing of myself and my sin, the, the resolution of mistakes and conflict. The pointing to Jesus. Things that are worthwhile normally take time, don't they? Love is always costly, isn't it? So it is with the church. But it's here that is the place that we hold on to the hope of heaven. And don't you think if we could listen to the commands and the instructions from verse 19 in our passage, don't you think what a wonderful heavenly assembly we would be? I mean, imagine if we did the things in verse 19 to 25. Imagine if those things really characterised us. Church would still be hard, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but what a wonderful thing it would be. Here's a call to see the church as heaven's assembly. Here's a call for us to, as it were, recommit. Here's a call to encourage. Here is a call to prioritise our time in church together. So as we close, perhaps a few moments to pray to the Lord. Perhaps some time now for each of us to quietly say to the Lord, actually, forgive me for the way I viewed the church. Actually, maybe I haven't viewed it the right way. Forgive me for not seeing it as a gift. Forgive me for wanting the easy way out when <laughs> the hard way of church life and encouragement actually is where you're promising to do your work. And maybe pray for that help to commit. Bit of, bit of quiet and then I'll close us in prayer.
Father in heaven, we just give you thanks. We give you praise for the wonderful truths we've been reminded of this morning. We praise you that in the Lord Jesus, the work of the forgiveness of sins has been finally achieved. We praise you that he is the only one in heaven and the only priest who's ever sat down, who has finished the work. Thank you that if we know him, we have certainty and security for the future. Thank you that we have a heavenly reality that we can hold on to. And Father, thank you that you put us in the church family to encourage one another to develop this mindset of what is true in heaven. Thank you for giving us the church that we might hold on to heaven and be encouraging one another for heaven. Help us, Father, we pray. We don't know in what ways this might come out, but help us to be those who consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds in the church family. Help us to be productive and active in our life together. And we pray this all the more as we look forward to the certain day of heaven that is coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.